You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Homesteading is characterised by a self-sufficient life lived on the land, usually with an emphasis on small-scale agriculture and often involving the small-scale production of textiles. It's a lifestyle that's heavily romanticised in modern times, probably because we're nostalgic for a simpler time. But it's actually an incredible amount of work to fully sustain yourself from the food you grow, let alone wrestling with all of the other homesteading chores that need to be attended to. We're incredibly lucky in this episode to have as a guest my Twitter friend, Joe Timar, who's also known as Tanuki's Revenge on Twitter. He lives with his wife on what he's referred to as a half-homestead, where the emphasis is more on lifestyle than role-playing a pioneer existence. He's going to walk us through some of the good things about his parcel of land, as well as some of the things he's had to work to remedy, and things that he still contends with today. G'day Joe, welcome to the show mate. Thank you, thank you very much for having me. Been listening for quite a while and I love the show, it's one of my favourite pods. Oh, thanks man, that's awesome dude. So can you tell us a little bit about Tanuki's the character? Like, what what is a tanuki in Japanese mythology? Okay, so uh, tanuki is two different things in every in, in the world, per se. I mean, there's an animal, uh, the tanuki, which is a raccoon dog, which is a canine, and it looks similar to our North American raccoons. It has that face and that bushy appearance. And in Japanese lore, tanuki is kind of a trickster character, I guess that would be the best way to put it in a Western way. He's big into sake and mischief, and um, he usually has a promissory note for goods when he trades it, and after he leaves, the promissory note turns into a leaf. So that kind of brings us to plants a little bit. So he's a bit of a trick star. Yeah, he likes to have a bit of fun. A little bit of sake. He's also associated a lot with restaurants and restaurateurs, and in the past 20 years, um, I've been in the restaurant business primarily chef at golf clubs and things like that. Mm. So it's, I, I always have a Tanuki statue when I go to a new place and bring <laughs> him with me. Just to suit your personality. Yeah, it, it is. And it's good luck. And then everybody asks about it. Then you kind of get to spread the lore of Tanuki as <laughs> we're doing right now. Yeah, totally. But currently you've been, well, I guess, how long have you owned your own place and how long have you been working on it now? Uh, we got our place eight years ago this April. It's about six and a half acres, mostly wooded. Um, We're in southeast Michigan, in between Pinckney and Waterloo Recreation Area. It's a magical place to live. I mean, it's living in a tourist destination. I mean, we have five lakes within two miles of the house. I can. We have tens of thousands of acres of parkland, and then our little place is kind of in the middle between the two big parks. Like I said, mostly wooded, the garden and the house. I like to call it a postage stamp garden because it's just kind of in the middle, surrounded by trees, which gives us a lot of difficulties. I mean, it, it's a challenge, you know. I mean, we're always fighting nature, and it's trying to find that balance because neither my wife nor I are in the clear-cutting the place. So, so we work around it. And it's predominantly oak and black cherry as far as the trees go. There's not too many pre-settlement trees left on our property maybe one we did have one that was my 
favorite tree in the world that was up front in the house. And unfortunately, that fell down last uh, summer during a storm. It was a big enough shock that it shook the whole house. But it uh, it kept us warm all winter, and it'll keep us all warm next winter and probably the winter after that. So it, it's going to good use. But it was, it was sad yes. to see such a magnificent tree. But so it goes. Yeah. That's very sad. It, it was rotted. I mean, it was... Yeah, I mean, it was, the inside was pretty rot, so I couldn't cut rings or anything. But I would guesstimate between two and 300 years old. I mean, it was, the spread on it would cover, it went all the way over the road. So it, it was an impressive tree. I'll post a picture of it later. <laughs> I think you sent me a picture of it when it was broken. Like, and you were kind of a bit devastated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was, it was a shock. Okay, good deal. Yeah. <laughs> so... What are some of the problems that you faced? So I guess, you know, you buy this property of land, you may not necessarily know what exactly you're in for. For sure. Can you walk us through some of the challenges that you've sort of been facing on that land? Yeah. Well, for, like I said, the trees. We're, we're surrounded by trees. The house doesn't get really covered by trees too much, which is nice in the summer. It gives us a little shade and break, and then the winter gives us a break from the cold. But in the garden, I mean, the most obvious thing is light competition. To the north of my garden, I have a line of walnut trees, which we'll get into later. Those have a whole mm -hmm. other set of problems. On the east side, I have a large cottonwood tree, which is probably the largest tree on our property. And then on the west side, I have an oak and another black walnut and some catalpas down that way. The south is pretty clear, though. So, I mean, I get some good light coming that way. But, I mean, it's... It's not as much light as would be ideal, but it, it, it's enough to work with. And you figure out what works where in the garden, what time of mm. year, too. So, so, that, so that's been a, a thing, basically figuring out what works and what doesn't. And that's kind of my philosophy with gardening. I, I stick to the things that I know I can grow, mm. and th that makes it a little easier, and I, and I think, mm. I don't know. The black walnuts, as I was talking about, in addition to competing with, for light and water and nutrients and all that, they also produce a substance called juglone, which produced in the fruit and the leaves and the branches. And it also can leach from the roots. And the problem with this is it's toxic to uh, many different plants, especially the salinaceous plants like the nightshade relatives, tomatoes. Mm -hmm eggplant, peppers, potatoes, those I can't have anywhere near the trees. Otherwise, they yellow up and they just wither away and die within weeks. It's mm -hmm. So it's I have to have everything far from the drip line of those trees, especially my tomatoes and peppers, which are some of my favorites. However, there are some plants that are not susceptible to the juglona. For instance, right now, back in the north end, I have a large area cleared out, and I have squash and pumpkins planted back there because those aren't affected from the juglona. So they mm. should do well. And it's, it's a challenge because the fruit contains a lot of the juglona, and then that drops all over. And even if it doesn't drop right into your garden, we still have squirrels that like to move them around. So little poison balls for the plants. <laughs> but the squirrels can eat them, so they're not affected by that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the black walnut itself is edible, and it's a, it's a very, one of the more nutritious nuts out there. We've gathered them before, dried them out, roasted them. They're pretty good. They don't have the, the same flavor as an English walnut. Mm. I, I'd say a little bit more pungent and pronounced. Ah. It, it's, it's one of those flavors that 
you either love it or you hate it. I don't think there's anybody quite neutral about it. Right. But it's it's a lot of work to get them because the shells, I'm sure you're familiar with regular English walnut. You can crack it with a nutcracker and things like this. These you usually have to use either a vice or a hammer or a combination of the two. So it's they're, they're, they're a lot of work to get, but I mean, they're abundant. We, we don't collect them every year just because of the work involved. Um, when we first moved here before our gardens were set up, I mean, that was that we did that more just because it was like, hey, we're foraging. It's <laughs> kind of homesteading, yeah. you know, because I mean, our idea was to get this place and make it, you know, a partial homestead. I mean, we, we don't live off of all our food or anything like that. But I mean, it, it is an important part of our life and our lifestyle. That's probably a good name for the episode, even partial homesteading. I think that's a cool phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Light, homesteading light. Because, I mean, we're, we're still on the grid. We still have internet and all that thing, all that. Mm. But, I mean, we, in the winter, we try to heat our house from wood from our land. And when we can, we feed ourselves from our garden. And we raise chickens and ducks for eggs. And sometimes we'll raise some meat birds. So it's it's a nice little place. And it's it, it's been a lot of work and a lot of surprises. and. One thing I'm, I'm starting to do, branching out from the yard and trying to do some restoration to the forested areas. We have some invasives that I've been slowly working at, mainly buckthorn. It's non-native invasive tree that just is very dense growing, can choke things out, grows pretty fast. Mm. And one thing is interesting about it is the bark of it looks very similar to the black cherry that we have here so it's oh, i have okay. i have to take it's a young one you can mix it up a little bit so it's well, when i'm taking those down i have to pay attention so you're mainly taking down these weeds when they're smaller not when they're full, sort of fully grown i imagine well there it's a tree you can grow up to 20 feet and it can get thorny and nasty so i mean it all depends and i have one section of woods where it was opened, and it's a blackberry area, and they, they're really encroaching on there. Okay. So that, that's that's my target area this summer. To be honest, the woods could use a good burning. There's a park area down the road, maybe a mile, and it's very similar to our woods. It was probably logged at about the same time, but our Department of Natural Resources, it's a management area, and then they do a lot of prescribed burns, and it takes care of some of that weedy undergrowth, and it gives it more that much mature forest feel and that's kind of what we're working at here slowly but surely I'm, I'm sure by the time i'm an old man and can't do it any longer it'll be the way i want it <laughs> ready for someone else to come and change it yeah i hope not but probably because <laughs> <laughs> i know you've been doing a lot of work on getting things right what are some of the other challenges that you've sort of faced you mentioned there you got soil and nutrient issues that you were working with can you walk us through some of those please well the the soil isn't i mean the soil is actually fairly good it, it's a nice sandy loam mm -hmm. and it's been forested before so i mean there's a lot of organic matter so so that isn't so much the problem sometimes the soil is a little hydrophobic so maybe it'd be nice to have a little clay added to it or something like that but I, I usually get pretty good results we have a nice compost heap we do lazy composting it's, we just sheet mm -hmm. compost uh, and every couple of years we get a nice uh, harvest compost so, so that adds nutrients to the soil and the garden area the vegetable garden when we moved here it was it was lawn mm. 
And then as tilling it up and working and expanding it year by year, you realize how much trash people have thrown over the last Uh 200 years that people have been living here. And and you find some interesting things, (laughs) mostly glassware, things like that, bricks, a lot of melted glass. There may have been a big fire here at one point, but it's... You know, it's everything from that animal bones. I found a few arrowheads in the garden. It's wow, kind of an interesting thing. I never <laughs> know what I'm going to find year to year, especially after the freeze and the thaw, and it brings everything up. And it's like, okay, you think you get it all cleared out, then there's a bunch of brick pieces <laughs> waiting for you. <laughs> so maybe they were archers, the people who were there before you. Well, I, I think that this is that was probably pre. Columbus arrows, I would think. I mean, it's they're they're really, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's very interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I haven't dated them, and I'm no expert at the different types of arrowheads, but I'm just assuming just because that's usually what's found in the area. Mm -hmm. So, you mentioned ducks and chickens as well. Can you walk us through some of the benefits of like what's the go with ducks and chickens? Why would you get them? Well, first of all, eggs are a nice, consistent source of protein. I mean, you don't have to, once they're raised and you have a place for them, I mean, you pretty much just have to keep the chickens and ducks happy and you get protein from them in the form of eggs. You don't have to do all the work with dressing a bird and processing it and all that. So, so that's where we started. Our flock of chickens over the years has kind of changed just because we had some buffs and some black copper morans, and now we have mixtures of them. We have some chickens that go broody every spring, and we just let them. I mean, it's we lose some eggs, and we get a couple chicks out of the deal. And, and, and the chicken gets to be a mom. Sometimes they're a good mom, and sometimes we have to put them in a separate coop. And <laughs> it, it, it's... It's nice because it's you get a reliable source of material you can compost manure-wise. Chicken manure is a hot manure, so you have to let it compost for a while. Like I said, we do sheet composting, and take, we, we do it very lazily, and it takes years to do it, so everything's cooked out by then. So that's one benefit. Pest control, it's as soon mm-hmm. as I'm done with the garden in the fall, I open it up to them, and then they can go in there and root around and eat larvae and everything else that they find. They they can be a nuisance, however. I mean, it's there are times we have a few different large pens for them, so we can switch them around to different locations. Other times we let them just free range around the whole property. Right now, I'm not letting them do that just because all the plants are in a delicate stage and they can... They could do some damage now. In another couple of weeks, the plants will be bigger. And if a chicken or two gets into the garden, they might get, you know, they might pick a little bit of lettuce or anything, but they're not going to undo months of hard work. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they're a bit fragile at the moment is because they're tender, just with the spring growth, do you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're more, it seems that the birds are more apt to peck at the more tender greens coming up, things like that. I've even noticed that with rabbits. Once cabbage and things get to a certain point, they kind of leave it alone. The chickens are the same way, mm-hmm. and they, they can do a damage, some damage, especially if they're all out. We have one we call her Houdini. She gets out every day <laughs> and gets back in every day. But, I mean, one, she doesn't, she doesn't really do anything. 
making sense. So that's good. And the ducks are great because they really don't do any damage. They don't do the scratching at the soil and things like that. So they're they're a little easier on the plants. They're less likely to take all your hard work and put it in their gullet. Mm-hmm. I think it was Gary Moran that said to me recently on an episode that I'll be releasing shortly about zero waste. He mentioned that you don't have a slug problem, you have a lack of duck problem. <laughs> That's that I can see that they they love slugs um in the morning. They have a a, a kiddie pool that we let them swim in and when you dump that out and you move it around, then there's worms and slugs underneath it. Mm. They always go to where the pools were before mm. they go for their morning swim because they know exactly what they're looking for. So, yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> yeah, they're great for pest management. It's I, I can notice that there's a lot more pests when I don't have them rummaging around. Mm. And another way we use them for pest control and control it is Probably in the next week or two, we'll start letting them out later in the evening. That way they don't have all day to rummage around and get into everything. And during the heat of the day, they they pretty much just find shade anyways and take their dust baths. Hmm. So we've talked about chickens, ducks. We've talked about sunlight with the trees. We've talked about your soil. What are some of the other challenges that you've faced on your land? Well... Being in Michigan, though, it's a northern temperate climate, so sometimes you can have early frost, late frost, so that's something that you got to take into consideration. I, during the spring, I mean, there, there's many times I have to cover them, the plants, or they don't have, I can't get them out early enough, so they go in during the night, and things like that. So temperature is, a, is, a, is an issue sometimes. And then not only the cold, I mean, we get really big swings in temperature. I mean, it can get quite warm one day, cold the other. This year, uh, we've been really light on rain. Um, so that has mm. been an issue. I mean, it, it requires more watering. And I mean, in my experience, watering, yeah, works for the plants, but there's nothing like a good soaking for them. They, they just go right. crazy over that. Yeah, I agree. I think there's nitrogen in the rainwater, seeing as nitrogen is an air and water-soluble compound or element. So I think that that's why uh, part of the reason, and also the slow soaking too, plants just love a slow soaking. They do, they do. And then during the heat of the summer, we'll implement soaker hoses during the hot days or the big rows where you you don't want to go through and water everybody. And those do a good Mm. job for us. We have a little system where you can turn this one on, that one on. that's a good time-saving device. It does use a lot of water. We're we're fortunate we have a, a nice well with great water. We, we really oh. lucked out on the water department. Awesome. I mean, it's, we don't filter it or soften it or anything. It's out of the ground, mm. beautiful water, doesn't stain anything. It's Oh, wow. Knock on wood that it stays that way. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that has to do with all the sandy soil and whatnot. So it's mm. good place for it. Yeah, right. So how do you use that water? Is it just for the garden or do you use that water elsewhere too? Oh, no, no. That, that, that's our water. I mean, we drink it. We wash mm. our clothes in it. We everything. And it's a lot of times while water gets that stigma, it's going to leave rust and have that sulfurous smell. And uh, we lucked out and didn't get any of that. I, wow. I don't know. I, I grew up out in the country and our water was not like this i always tell my wifey that uh we're lucky we got the sweet water you know it's just (laughs) 
and, and the plants really do seem to like it because I don't I don't treat my water out of the tap. Mm. I, I start my seedlings indoor doing due to the cold. I mean, it's mm. in February and March here. It's it's cold, so mm. I haven't had any pH problems. It stays fairly neutral. I mean, even for well water, so that's pretty good. Yeah, sounds like you really did luck out because I know that well water isn't always the highest quality. Yeah, yeah, we we do it. Yeah, we, we we've had it tested, and so far so good. So it's wow. you know it's coming from aquifer filtered and good to go. Mm. So have you had any major pest outbreaks or anything like that where you are? Ants can be a problem. They like the nice sandy loam, so they have hills built up. One year I made the mistake of leaving my garden fabric out there for weed control and left it over winter, and they decided that was a great place to take up <laughs> residence. And they were actually mining aphids and some they had aphids mining my plants and so so that was uh <laughs> that was a that was a tricky situation. I, I don't like to use a lot of broad pesticides or herbicides, but I, I will use them directly just in places where i need them and lightly for them i used borax that's the usual treatment and it, it doesn't eliminate them out there i mean there's just too many of the darn things but it does slow them down a little bit hmm. so you're just using it very selectively very selectively i i'll use a few few traps and i'll put them by where they're active and mm-hmm. I, I don't blanket the area or anything like that as far as spraying goes most of the time i just try to have enough out there where a few damaged plants aren't going to affect me totally. I use, it's a product that it's a, it's a plant wash. It's basically oil dish soap with a little bit of peppermint oil in it. Mm. The bug, it doesn't seem to really kill them or keep them away completely, but it, it slows them down. And for some reason, the plants seem to like the spray. So it, it works out. It's, it's helped me a bit. Some of what you're talking about reminds me of an integrated pest management approach because you're kind of using chemicals as a last resort. I'm not going to shy away from them if they're needed, but you are using your physical traps and you're using an eco kind of an oil to take care of those pests. Right. And, and another strategy that we've used over the years is we plant flowers through the vegetable garden everywhere. And that brings in a lot of pollinators. And a lot of the pollinators will, the wasps and whatnot, will actually feed off of some of the larvae and things. We have an asparagus patch. And then right now I'm starting to get the asparagus beetles. And then soon their larva will hatch and then the worms will come. Then I have these little wasps that come by and then they just take care of them and slow them down. I mean, my, I've all, we've already harvested our asparagus, so right now it's just setting up leaves. But by not mm. spraying everything, I still have the predator insects around. Whereas if I used a broad yes. spray and sprayed everything, I would take care of my ladybugs, my wasps, all that. And I really love my butterflies, so I can't do that. I mean, it's butterflies we've really... When we first moved here, we would rarely see a monarch butterfly. Then we started planting milkweed everywhere and butterfly mm-hmm. weed and the zinnias. And in another few weeks, it'll be rare that you can look out there and not see either a swallowtail <laughs> or a monarch oh, or something awesome. like that. We actually had a, it wasn't a big migration, but a couple of years ago we had it and it was just a constant stream of monarchs flying over and some stuck up in a tree. So, so that was, that was impressive from, going to not seeing her when we first moved here to 
seeing them daily, which is a pretty good accomplishment. And every year we have the caterpillars and they make their little cocoons and it's always fun watching them hatch out of the chrysalis. Yeah, absolutely. It must be awesome to have access to land where you're kind of like having a bigger bang for your buck. I guess like if you're in the city, chances are your neighbors are probably using chemical pesticides, which are systemic. For sure. Meaning that you're probably going to mm-hmm. lose a lot of your predators and stuff like that because the ecosystem's all out of whack. Whereas where you are, because you have probably more land and your neighbors are probably further away from you and stuff like that, you're probably actually able to have more of an impact. I would like to think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we, we do have some uh, large-scale agriculture in the area. Across the road, he usually alternates between beans and corn. And then at the back of our property, our property stretches, I don't know, about 200 meters or so back. There's a field that they do hay in, which is nice in the early spring because I can take the dogs back there and walk before it grows up and whatnot. But uh, we don't have a lot of commercial agriculture. When I grew up, we always had gardens, and my mother is probably the reason why I garden. And occasionally, we, they that, however, instead of being surrounded by trees, we were surrounded by large-scale agricultural. And every once in a while, when they were spraying, I mean, even the herbicide, if the wind was blowing the right way, would take some things out here. And then we're lucky here, too, because we have a large tree buffer. I mean, that, that's that's the trees. They, they're good and they're bad. I mean, it's <laughs> just it's been a challenge to learn to live with them. I mean... Living in the woods is, is a different experience. You can, I, I can tell why not many people do it. Mm. Well, one is you probably don't have access to a whole lot of good town water. That's true. Certainly been the case on my parents' hobby farm that they bought a few gotcha. years ago. Mm, yeah. Okay. They, yeah, they've got rainwater set up. Okay. All right. And they've got a couple of dams as well, but you, you wouldn't drink the water out of the dams though. No, I, I wouldn't imagine so. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Look, predators that feed on the garden. Last year, I decided to grow pumpkins and squash on the compost heap versus in the garden, the vegetable garden, just because they sprawl and they take up so much space. Mm. And then they were good most of the time. And then about September or so, the deer started visiting and... They ate most of them, but th- this year I haven't been a fenced in area. I may throw a couple pumpkin plants out there for the year, though, just because. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> just because they're cute. <laughs> I, I, well, I like to complain about them, but I mean, they, it's every year um, we see at least one or two fawns on our property, and so I mean, it's it, mm-hmm. they're they're a daily part of our life too. In the evening, if we walk the property to the edge, almost guaranteed to see them, and. I remember last September, I was trying to chase them out of the garden. They're completely not afraid of me. I remember walking up to them within what, five, ten meters or so with a flashlight, and they just looked at me like, what are you doing, person? Really? Lazily strolled <laughs> off, yeah. <laughs> well, so we have a lot of hunting. hunting then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are. And we have a lot of hunting in the area, and, and they know that uh, we don't hunt. I mean, I'm not opposed to it. There, there are too many deer, if anything. But but they know that we don't hunt, and especially during hunting season. They, uh, they'll bed down on our property sometimes mm. within if it was daytime within view of the house. So that's interesting. Mm. Yeah, my parents actually have deer on their farm too. I mean, they're certainly not native, um, and I'm not okay. sure about – yeah, I'm not sure if they have any negative ecological effects or anything, but my dad sometimes lets people on his property who are going to hunt them, 
just because mm-hmm. I guess, you know, they're there and they're a good source of meat and they're a good source of protein and, and all that sort of stuff. Definitely. And one Definitely. deer can feed a whole family. So he had a guy come in and it's a big walk up the hill. Like it took him, I think, an hour or so to walk up the hill and he was just scouting out and having a look because this this was during the rut when they're sort of mating and the okay. males are oh, very, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, he, mm-hmm. he walks around and has a look and then he sees this one prize buck better than he's ever seen in his entire life. I think it had uh, the horns were massive on this thing. So, yeah, he he shoots it. Then he gets so excited he takes the head off because that's the trophy and then he walks down the hill and shows my dad and he actually falls over on his way down and hurts himself. But he shows my dad the head and my dad's sort of looking at him like, why did you bring the head down? That meat is up there. That's going to rot. This trophy is pretty much fine to just leave up there. You know, like right, get, right, your, right. get your butt back up there up. and bring the you rest it of cold. it down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yes. it took him a couple of visits back up and down to realize that dad was serious about this. No, you bring that meat down because you've killed that animal now. Right, right, right. For sure. Yeah, you, you don't want to waste it. No. But yeah, this thing was spectacular. Wonderful. Yeah. They're impressive animals. They really are. And it, it, it's a joy seeing them. I mean, it just reminds you that. We weren't here first, and <laughs> you know, you, you're kind of like shepherding the land in a way, aren't you? Because it'll be—it's been there before little, you, and it'll be there after you. Yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm at. I, my goal is just to try to restore this place. I know I'm not going to be able to restore it to how it was pre-settlement, but get mm. to a healthy ecosystem. Have our area where we can take what we need from the land and still have some kind of balance with it. You know, I, I it's really enriching and fulfilling to do. It's just because over the years, we've been here eight years, we're starting to see the process. I think it was two years ago that my wife and I were walking around and I looked and was like, oh my gosh, we have a farm. You know, it was one mm. of those, one of those deals. Bit of a pinch yourself moment. It kind of was because it's you, you do this slowly over time and one thing doesn't seem like it's that much and then another thing and another thing and then one day you just can see it all. You can see the farm from the trees, I guess. And then, <laughs> it, and then it just kind of hits you and it's like, oh my gosh, we're doing it. We're, we're doing what we set out to do. And it, it, it's been a journey. I mean, it's growing and Growing plants and raising animals. I mean, there's always heartbreaks involved, as I'm sure you and all the listeners that garden know. I mean, that that's mm-hmm. that's part of the part of the deal. I mean, it's there. There's times I get disease out the tomato. Well, tomatoes. I'm very bad at growing. I'll be the first yeah, one to admit it. I shouldn't though. even. I, I shouldn't <laughs> be growing tomatoes, but I do it every year. I mean, my my philosophy: grow what you can. I I break that every year with tomatoes, just because <laughs> I, lo- I love tomatoes. Uh, last year, I actually did good. I got enough to can and make sauce, which is a rarity. Usually, it's just enough for salads and s- sandwiches and snacks. So, so that was pretty good. I mean, it's growing tomatoes. I usually grow tomatoes and end up buying a couple bushels to process, anyways. Mm-hmm, but it's. Mm-hmm. To me, the garden is more about moments, you know, it's like, it's never guaranteed that you're going to get a great harvest or that this plant's going to do well. But, but right now, you, you, I always have this moment right now where it's, it's late May, everything's in, disease hasn't came, the, the pest ha- haven't came yet. So I, I just kind of try to enjoy this moment, mm. if that makes sense. 
Yeah, it does. So do you have any advice for anybody who's looking to maybe start a similar sort of a project where they're half living off the land? What would you tell them? Don't get discouraged. Mm. Take some time to learn your land, learn your property, your sunlight patterns, especially us with the tree cover. I mean, the sun changes during the year, so our our shade changes through the year. So that's something you need to pay attention to. What else? Be tenacious. Just keep at it. And that's the best way, especially the situation. I mean, everything else is going to keep trying to encroach on what you're doing. So, I mean, find a way to keep it back and I guess try not to damage. But I mean, it's, it's I don't know, kind of a delicate situation, I suppose. Mm. So just give it a go. Be tenacious. Don't be discouraged. Just keep going. And if you have a pest outbreak or if maybe the deer come and eat all of your squash or your pumpkins, just keep going (laughs) and just learn from it. (laughs) That's pretty much what you can do because I think myself included, most gardeners are in it for the experience of growing it. When you get something, that's great. But it's to see something grow and produce fruit and flower and all that, I think that's the true magic in all of this for Mm. me. Totally. Plant advice. My favorite one that I say the best place for your uh, quarantine for your six seedlings and plants and stuff is in the compost heap. Um, mm. I, I think I read it somewhere that you want to run a garden, not a hospital. And, and I, I found that to be a good time saver because it's if I spend a lot of time on, on sick plants, then I end up neglecting the healthy ones. So sometimes wow, it's easier yeah. if you get a sick flat. I mean, I had to earlier this season, pitch a whole flat of coleus that I grew from seed. And, and then that was heartbreaking, but it was like, well, I can't spend all my time here and I don't want them to get the other one sick. So I'm, I'm not sure exactly what, they were behaving like it was a virus. So I was like, all right, you're out of here. Yeah, okay. I'll grow you again next year. <laughs> <laughs> and you're finding that when you put those sick plants into the compost, that's not spreading because it's taking such a long time to break them down properly that right. those it- viruses and stuff aren't there. Yeah, it, it runs hot and then it just settles over the years. And it's, I haven't had any issues with that. Usually it's pretty clear of weed seeds. So I, I generally think if it's enough to cook the weed seeds that it's probably cooking out anything else in it. Good point. Joe, did you have anything else written down that you wanted to talk in this episode before I ask that final question? Well, one other trick that, that I've been doing over the last couple of years, it seems to work for me. Is just like any garden always gets weeds. Is I've been kind of controlling the weeds in a way by making my own. So what I'll do is oh. microgreen seeds are quite inexpensive. You can buy a pound of those. I don't not fairly reasonable. Now go a long way. And then if it's an area that I haven't got to, or I'm not going to get to, or even in between the rows, I just throw the microgreens down, and those oh. will fill in. Annual poppies do a very good job at that. That's that's a nice thing. They're Showy for not very long, maybe a week or so. I like the Hungarian bread poppies. But those are nice because once they seed out and you get seeds, you throw them in the fall. And I like to say, once you have poppies, if you do it right, you always have poppies. And it's kind of nice because when they fill in the bed, uh, my herb garden always has a bunch of them in there because I just have a few annuals and garlic and whatnot in there. And I spread the poppy seeds in there. And then instead of weeding lamb's quarter and things like that. I'm weeding out poppies and thinning those. And when they do fill out, they cover up and block out the noxious weeds. And I got a pretty flower to look at. Mm, Very true. 
And it's better to have something that is desirable clogging up that sort of space rather than letting noxious weeds take control that may actually be more environmentally harmful. Right. Exactly. And then, I mean, it's the bee, the honeybees and other pollinators really like the poppies as well. So that mm. brings them around and attracts them. And then they come to your other plants and visit your peppers and your tomatoes and all those mm. and pollinate them all for you. Yeah. Using nature's sort of systems that it already has going, just using them for yourself. That's, I, I try to do that when, when possible. I mean, it's mm. not always possible when you're a person trying to grow. Uh, fruits and vegetables from other areas of the world, but it, it, I, I try to do it. So, Joe, is there anything else that you'd like the listeners to know about? Nah, I, I can't think of anything offhand. I mean, just be good to each other, be good to our planet, uh, be good to the other creatures and plant and plants and fungi that live here. I mean, it's it's our home and our mother, I guess. Yeah, that's beautiful, Joe. Because I really believe that too. Right on. Thank you for coming on the show, mate. Thanks for having me, Daniel. I really appreciate it. No, no dramas, man. I think this was an awesome episode, and I hope that a lot of our listeners are inspired to go out there and try something similar for themselves. Definitely. I mean, get out there. I mean, anytime you're out there gardening, growing, raising things, I mean, there's going to be successes and failures. The successes are nice, but I'll tell you, I've learned way more from failing than I have from succeeding. All the best gardeners say that, I reckon, Joe. Oh, good, good, good. I have to admit, the half-homesteading life appeals to me a lot more than trying to be fully self-sufficient because you can have access to most of the benefits of homesteading without tying yourself to the goal of being fully self-sufficient, which, I don't know about you, but that lifestyle doesn't appeal to me at all. If you're not on Twitter, go and make an account and follow Tanuki's Revenge and Plants Grow Here. As long as you stay away from politics, Twitter is actually a great place to network with other plant nuts. Stay tuned for next week's episode on living a zero or minimal waste life with Gary Moran, aka Arba Smarty. Another Twitter friend that you'll already be familiar with if you've been listening to Plants Grow Here for a while. <laughs>